Oh man, well thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. It's good stuff. How are you guys? Ooh, a little noise in here at 1115. A couple more cups of coffee than the nine had. It's fantastic. Man, I tell you what, you know, it's something I thought about. I didn't mention this uh, in the first gathering, but um, just looking out, it was, re- it was really packed in the first gathering. The, the hosts in the back and the ushers were setting up more chairs and I could hear ba- there's babies crying in the back and you could hear just absolute insanity over there. I think they had almost 30 kids uh, in suite seven and uh, 26 or 27 kids in uh, fours and fives. I mean, it just exploding everywhere. And it just I, immediately I just thought, about Jesus and his engagement with Peter. And if you read, you read this kind of interaction in, in Matthew where he's talking to Peter, I don't think Peter quite understands, but he's talking to him about the continuation of the church. And he's saying, Peter, you're going to be the right. He probably thought Peter was kind of a, you know, like a linebacker. He wasn't the smartest guy, you know, just kind of bumbling around, you know, doing things that, uh, you know, you, you might not think were the smartest things, but he was so dedicated to who Jesus was, even when he didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And he he says, you're going to be the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And then he says something that just, just makes me think. Like if you don't believe in Jesus or you're wondering if he's the way, if you're wondering what's going on, this might make you think, think a little more and ask a few more questions. He said, there's nothing that's going to overcome the church. He says, not even hell, not even Hades, nothing's going to overcome. And I was just thinking the words of Jesus and what he's saying, saying there's not going to be any war that's going to overcome the church. There's not going to be any persecution that will overcome the church. It's not not going to shut it down. There's not going to be any other religion that will stop the church. There's not going to be, atheism's not going to stop the church. There's not going to be some scientific discovery or something that we find out in space that's going to stop the church. Although people have thought that's what's going to happen. All along the way, people have thought, the church is going down. Pandemic is not going to stop the church. And it's interesting as I looked out, I just saw, you know, the chairs jam packed and thinking about churches all over this city and people being, you know, in the seats coming. You got to ask the question why? Like looking at each other and and asking, well, I can look at the students like, well, my parents made me come. Um, But for the rest of you, I'm kidding. You guys love being here. I know you guys. Uh, But you got to ask the question, why? If you don't, like, why would you come? What about this guy, Jesus? Why are we worshiping his name? Why are we talking about this resurrection? If it wasn't real, why would there be people all over the planet engaging in what we're engaging in? As the Apostle Paul says, this would be foolishness if the resurrection from the dead wasn't true. We would be fools. And I would say the same thing to us. How in the world has it survived over two millennia? In every other myth, lots of great leaders come along, have come and gone, and you don't remember their names, but yet Jesus is the name above all names. More paintings painted of him, more books written about him, movies made about him, songs and psalms and poems written about him than any other figure in history. And we're here. And if you're wondering about belief, you can start right there and begin to ask the question, why are all these relatively smart people, right? I mean, a few of you, yeah. But your smart people are here, and, and not just here. When we, when we gather on the beach on, on Easter, and you know, we'll, the last time I think we had seven or 800 people, and there'll be people in Easter gatherings all over the city and all over the globe celebrating the name of Jesus. But, but not just that, celebrate the fact that he's alive from the dead, that the tomb is empty, that there ain't no grave that's going to hold him down. Death did not hold him down. And I love this series that we're, we're moving through this journey through Easter. And the way that it's going to work is today we're going to talk about Thursday. Like if we think about the days leading up, 
You know, the, the, the days leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection, you've got Thursday. And that's today. That's the Last Supper. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the uh, disciples preparing the upper room. Um, and the, the Jesus washing the disciples' feet, which is what we'll focus on today. And then we'll, have, we'll talk about Friday next week. And then we'll talk about Saturday, which I am so excited about that because you don't really think about Saturday, but Saturday is where life happens, where you're wondering where is God and there's silence and everybody thought all hope is lost and is, is, is there any hope for us? Is anything going to happen? And we think nothing's happening, but while, he, while we're waiting, while everybody was waiting, he was working. He was waging war. And I mean, that is, I mean, Saturday is going to be a good one, but then we're going to have the momentous Sunday as we finish the journey to Easter. And we're actually going to roll the series over to Monday this time. Because what do you do? I mean, after resurrections, we always go through Holy Week and then all of a sudden we got to live, you know? And some, some people have a case of the Mondays, you know? We got we to gotta deal with life. Um, so that's the kind of the essence of the series. And I was thinking about, you know, as, as Dan was reading, I was just... You know, this whole picture of Jesus doing something to the disciples that was unusual. It wasn't even, I mean, it wasn't even, it would have been unusual. It was unusual, very unusual that Jesus was doing it, but it would have been unusual for anybody to wash somebody else's feet other than somebody that was at the lowest echelon of the social ladder as a, as a slave. So it was this shocking thing. It was this, and there was this almost objection to it that you hear from Peter, like, no, don't, 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 do, don't do this. And the rest of the disciples, I'm sure, were thinking, this, is, this doesn't make sense. It's a little bit awkward. And part of that is because we, we are self-sufficient people. And there's something about putting something on somebody else to do that it makes us feel like, hey, don't, don't you know, I, I, can, I can do that myself. It started to, to make me think about, you know, when kids, like, we are completely, as human beings, we're the pinnacle of creation, a majestic creatures. I mean, we just, um, but we're the most dependent and the most fragile and frail at birth. But then there's this race as things continue to become independent. And it happens really quickly with kids. I got three of them. And you got some kids that you're cutting their waffles till they're 17. And I get it. I know that's frustrating. <laughs> but you got, you've always got a couple of them that are like, they want to do it themselves. I mean, you do, I mean, I had my daughter, Ella. She was in the first gathering. Um, Abe wasn't as much like that. He just said, you know, cut my waffles till whenever, Mom. Yeah, it's fine. But she was, I'm going to do it by myself. I mean, she just, I didn't want anybody. She's just always swatting you, putting on her jacket. Or she wanted to pick her own clothes at a very young age. There are some disasters that I can't even talk about where things got forgotten. And it just was bad, you know, like you cannot do that when you go to dance. People are, it's just crazy, you know, it's bad. Um, I couldn't say that in the first gathering. Um, and this one's not on the stream, so don't tell my daughter I mentioned that at all. But they, they want to be independent. It's what they do. And I, and I love parents. It's so funny. I talked to a couple of them afterwards. They said, you were talking about me. And I said, yes, I was. Um, but, you know, with social media, you know, you post kids, like you have kids and you post all these events and family gatherings and holidays. And, and if you've got a couple of kids or three, you might put them in matching outfits. Um, I mean, if you're Satan. Um, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. I know some of you do it. It's great. It's cute. I look at them all. I think they're awesome because the kids enjoy them to a point. And see, what I'm always waiting for is that one post. Like, they're always like both kids. You know, if it's two boys, it's like the, you got the little boy here and the big, they all got the same outfit. And they're just, woo, you know, they got matching surf shirts or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, the little one's still going, woo. And then there's that one day where the big one was like this. And now he's like, 
And it's over. Like, you know, he's 10 and he's terrified that his friends have social media and that he is no longer cool in middle school. I mean, he's just worried like something is going down and doesn't want to do. And he wants to dress himself, wants to figure it out on his own. And for us, we are we are built in our society for independence. I mean, our country was founded on it. Actually, it was founded on a collective. We kind of, that's been kind of misconstrued, I think, uh, ideologically in the last uh, 15 years. This idea of individualism is what we were founded on. And we actually were founded on a collective under a set of singular values that we all agreed upon. But we've kind of moved towards this expressive individualism where it's about, it's about you be you and I'll be me and I'm not going to mess with who you are. And expressive individualism is this idea that if you, if success and freedom is defined by being able to do it on your own, being able to define your life, being able to create your own identity in any way that you possibly can. I can create my own. The burden of creating your own identity of who you are in life and finding yourself is on your own shoulders and then achieving it on your own and being liked and being loved by other people without sacrificing the identity that you've created for yourself or the choices that you've made. So don't mess with me and my life. They're my choices. It's my freedom. And we believe that that's freedom. But what's interesting, thinking about expressive individualism, which is the cultural norm, by the way, that is not something that's debated. Like this isn't some religious thing I'm talking to you about. This is, you know, you talk to anybody that's into social psychology, they'll tell you that is where we are in the United States of America. And it's kind of how we live. And a lot of us are the same way. Achievement, doing things. I'm, I'm that way. I want to do it on my own. Nobody, it's like getting and trying to receive help is difficult. I mean, I, I think about, you know, even thinking about some of the songs that we sang and why we engaged in them and maybe why some of you had tears in your eyes, because I did, thinking about the idea of my fear, my shame, my anxiety, or any of the things that nobody really wants to talk about out loud. Why? Because you want to be self-sufficient. You want to say, I can do this on my own. I don't want to be ashamed of the fact that, that there's things in my life that bring me fear, that bring me anxiety, that make me stressed out. We, we, we refuse, to, and we come into church, and we often, it's all smiles and, you know, how you doing, brother? It's good to see you, brother. And then there's real life. And then there's what, and, and somebody even said this in our, our pre, uh, just our, when we were praying right before the gathering this morning, and it was a prophetic word from God. I, I felt that way. She just said, I feel like people are going to come in here and the problem will be, and God is going to solve it, is that they will come in with a beautiful packaged self, all wrapped up with a bow. And that's what they present to the world because that's what makes them feel okay. But what they need is for that wrapping paper to be ripped off. They need to be exposed. There needs to be something raw where there can actually be healing, where they can actually admit that they have fear and anxiety and stress and that they can bring those to the table. They can bring those to the feet of Jesus because that's the way that we were made. And in fact, for us, we believe that individualism might be what we want to do, we think that's the thing that will satisfy us. If we can succeed on our own, do things on our own, have good marriages, have good families, raise kids well. And we, we wear those as banners. We wear our, our paychecks like necklaces. It's kind of the, it's the words of a song by Brett Dennett. It's like we wear those things and those, those things define us. But what's, what's true, even before we get into Scripture and what people are starting to discover about one of the reasons we're stressed out, one of the reasons that we're anxious, one of the reasons that we're so broken, 
Um, In psychology today, it says this. It says American culture values independence. And we certainly do. And there's some good things about being able to do things on your own. But sometimes we can take it a bit too far. For many of us, success goes hand in hand with self-sufficiency. Anything, we are often told, can be achieved through hard work, which usually implies work done on one's own. But then the article goes on to do a deeper study into human behavior and and how this affects our health. They said, until recently, mental health professionals often viewed dependence as weakness. So if you were dependent, if you were somebody that, that operated in a collective rather than an individualistic way, and you depended on people that way, and you hadn't broken free of being dependent on anyone, that was viewed as weakness, but no more. However, recent, a recent work by Robert Bornstein and other personality research has recast dependence as a trait all people share. Imagine that, because the Bible's been saying that for centuries, for millennia. Also goes on to say, researchers have found that people who avoid asking for help may suffer significant social and professional costs. They have a tendency to avoid seeking valuable help. I can't remember, I mean, the times I've made the mistake of not asking for help is, you know, have you ever been in, I mean, even the, the funny ones, like you're building something or trying to hold something up and you're like, I should have called Fireman Dave to come help me out, which I have. I've, I don't make that mistake anymore. I was trimming some, <laughs> we trimmed those trees. There was no way I was going to do that myself, was I? Yeah, I thought I was, but I, you just, we don't. And it's in, I would have physically gotten harmed if I hadn't asked for help. But we do that. And, and we think that that's the way that we want to do it. It's, it's, it's the thing that we do. It says they have the tendency to avoid seeking valuable help from educators, colleagues, because involving others makes them feel needy. I mean, we hate that word. I mean, we, we don't want needy people around us and we don't want to be needy. I mean, that's just one of those things in our culture. And it may be the, the word, but maybe there needs to be a better marketing campaign for needy. But the, the, that whole idea of asking for help or not being self-sufficient is, is pushed so far down. And what I love about what we're digging into in this passage is, you know, the, this is, it says recent studies. Well, this is Jesus, and this is well over 2,000 years ago. I mean, this is the, off, across the landscape of Scripture is... The idea that, you know, the pages of Bible leads, leads us away from ourselves, which expressive individualism is all about me and my way and the way that I've chosen. I mean, the problem that happened in the Garden of Eden, I want to be my own boss. I mean, that's why they got booted out of the garden. Two fiery angels at the east end say you're not coming back because you're not the boss. I mean, that was the initial problem was expressive individualism. They wanted to be God. They thought they could run their own lives. They thought they could be the captain of their own universe. But the Bible leads us away from ourselves and independence and toward dependence on God and one another, which is countercultural to be dependent on other people, to actually unify under one ideal, under one name, as, as Dave was saying. I mean, that's almost everybody's looking at that. There, people are scared of that. I think it's why people sometimes, you know, throw darts at the church because and think the church, the church is is weird, and we can be weird. I mean, let's be honest, the church can be weird people, but that's that's because it's so countercultural to be a group of people, like I said before, that are gathering all over the city under one name. It's a rare thing, and Jesus is solidifying something that we need to hear for our own heart in this in this passage. So, if you got your Bible. We're in that same passage in John 13. We're going to start in verse 10. And to set that up, I mean, you heard it being read 
I mean, Jesus, it's the Last Supper had been prepared. They were getting ready to have the Last Supper, and Jesus decides to wash the disciples' feet. Now, he didn't just decide. He's doing it to show them. That's why he's asking the question in the middle of this. Do you, do you know what's up? Do you know why I'm doing this? And, of course, there's an objection. And Peter, I love that Peter initially doesn't get it, but then gets it. Like, he's, he's like, no way you're going to do this. I can do that. This is something that, you know, I should be doing myself. And you, as the son of God and, you know, our, our future king, you, you shouldn't be doing this. But then Jesus says, well, if, you, if, if I don't do this, then you can't be with me. And he doesn't understand what he's really saying is, if you're not washed by the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection by the faith that you believe in as I am crucified, which none of that's happened yet, but he's saying if, if that doesn't, if you don't believe, if you're not washed by the blood, if you are not part of the new covenant in my blood, then you, you're not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. But I'm, I'm going to do something that invites you into that. So Peter goes from, okay, I don't want to do this, and then, then he hears, all he hears is, I'm not going to be able to be with Jesus who he loved. He's like, do it all. Heads, hands, wash feet, I'm in. Like he, get, he starts to get it. Not fully, but I love that about Peter. That he's, if this is going to be me with Jesus or without Jesus, I'll take the with Jesus and whatever he wants to do, I'm down. And so Jesus wants to clarify a little bit. And they still don't fully get it here, but he wants to clarify what he's doing. Because they're like, what, what, why are you doing this and why do you want to do this? So Jesus answered and says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Now, what he's saying here, if you go read any commentary, he's basically saying this is the process of salvation and sanctification in one sentence. He's saying, look, you're going to be clean. Cleaning is going to happen, but there's going to need to be a daily foot washing. There's going to be, you're going to still stumble. Just like Aaron was saying, we're going to walk back into the tomb. We're going to, even though we've been rescued, even though the work has been done, even though it is finished, we're going to walk back into graves all the time. I mean, I do all the time, thinking that something is better than Jesus, thinking I can save myself, thinking this is, this is the road where I'm actually going to find worthiness for myself. We stumble in those areas all the time, use things to medicate the stress and anxiety and the fear that we have that we just sang about. We'll do plenty of things to, to figure out how to fix that outside of Jesus. So we, we're going to need to come back to Jesus, and Jesus is going to be open-armed for us because that's the way that the gospel is that his doors will never close. He will always open them up to us. And he's just saying, you're going to need the daily foot washing, but you're clean. But he also is saying something else about somebody that's there at the Last Supper with them. It says, for he knew who was going to betray him. That's Judas Iscariot, right? And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So there's somebody there that is not clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says this question, and this is the one that we're really going to address today. Do you understand what I've done for you? And that's the question I have for us. It's like, do we really understand what he's, what he's done for us? And what he's done in this moment that we see here in this narrative, but what he's done for us in totality. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. And I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's, he's talking about the hierarchy, but it's a very kind of complex thing. We're not going to get into it fully, but he's talking about the, his relationship with God. Like there's this thing that, 
He's, he's gonna, and we're going to see it kind of broken down here in a minute as, he, as Jesus does something incredible in the way that he washes their feet and brings them into this whole thing. But in this, he's explaining that he submits and obeys God, even though he's equal with God. I mean, if we know anything about the Trinity, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they're all equal. But there's this collective submission, servanthood, love, and glorification that takes place in the Trinity. And Jesus is kind of alluding to that here as he's saying, no servant is greater than his master. He's saying, I'm not greater than God in any way. He is the one who sent me, and I'm not greater than him. He is the one who sent me. But he's not talking about being lower. He's just saying something very direct about who he is and his relationship with God. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, most people walk away from this and it's a passage on, and it, it is on servant leadership. Like you see the king of the world going below the, 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 the you know, below where the disciples would ever dare go and he washes their feet. And they, it's kind of this, this shocking thing. And it's what we should do as leaders is we should, you know, wash people's feet. We should serve and we should serve alongside people, not just ask people to do things. And there's some great lessons there. And that's absolutely something that you could glean from this passage, but there's so much more, there's so much depth to what Jesus is doing as he's washing the disciples' feet. So we're going to answer this question. Do we understand what he's done for us? Well, there's, there's no, no way in the time we have we could cover all of it, but we're going to cover three things that Jesus did when he washed the disciples' feet. And when you see, when we see this passage and you see what, what Jesus is doing and even thinking about how Jesus lowers himself below where the disciples are, knowing that he is God. Like he's the son of God, but he is God. He was the active force in creation. Here he is washing the disciples' feet. Um, it just, I don't know what, why this popped in my head. Sometimes funny things happen. It's just random. But I was thinking about when I first got into ministry is years ago. Well, I got into ministry about 17 years ago, but I, I've gotten a full-time ministry, I guess, 15 or so years ago. Maybe a few more now. Actually, this is about 17. Um, I know, it's crazy. So, um, I, yeah, should I stay? I don't know. Um, you guys are great. I'll stay. So you, you, you get into this, this, you know, new life. And I, you know, I worked, you know, uh, with a really good friend of mine, a small IBM business partnership. I was a systems analyst. I was a programmer. I mean, you know, some people don't ever believe that. I'm like, yes, I wrote code for a living. Um, and I had a great life and made really good money. Uh, and then I went into ministry, and then I didn't make really good money. So, I mean, I'll just say that. It's one of those things. I'm not trying to, hey, can we pass the plate real quick? Um, no, I, not at all. But it's just the transition. And then, you know, you get to that point where you're in ministry about four or five years, and then there really is no more money um, because you were used to spending more money, and that's just how it goes. And then you have more kids, and you're like, why am I doing this? Um, and you get to that point in ministry, and it was great. It was uh, amazing. But all the stuff that you bought when you did have money, you, you don't buy any new stuff. It just stays the same stuff. So I had the same 2003 Honda Odyssey minivan. Some of y'all had that van and knew it was awesome in its day. I mean, you had the little buttons and the doors would, you know, open up um, for like two months and then they quit working. Um, but everything by this point had quit working on the 2000. It smoked and it had like goldfish like ground into the carpet from like five years before and then two years before and then one year before because I had three children and you had just it was just a mess it was just absolute trash um, and it was kind of embarrassing to ride down the road anyway a couple of friends of ours at uh, RCC where I was on staff um, just wanted to bless us and gave us two nights at the Ritz-Carlton me and my wife and we we're like sweet 
So, and I'm embarrassed to say, this is a confession, when I roll up to the Ritz-Carlton in my 2003 smoking minivan, I wanted to self-park. I mean, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, you just always want to self-park. So I get up there, and I'm, I'm looking for anybody that works at the, the Ritz. I find a guy that's walking out, he's carrying some luggage. I mean, is there a self-park? He's like, there is no self-park. I mean, I just didn't want to be like, roll up there, handing Jeebs my keys, you know, and my, you know, I just, it didn't feel right. And so I ended up having to pull up in there, and it's, you know, if you've, if you've ever been to anything that nice, it's just like you roll up there, and it's just like, it's like nice, and the van's not. And it's just, you're there, and I, I just felt like embarrassed and shame. And you, in, in that moment, there's moments in life, like most of us, like we live at the beach, beach culture, you know, you, know, you surf, you hang out with, and it, you feel like you're in your zone and there's not, you don't feel the hierarchy as much. But it there's, doesn't take long to get out of your element and you realize all of society is built on scales and hierarchy with human beings. Like, who's higher? Who's lower? And that one made me feel a little bit lower than everybody else, wanting to get back to other people with 2003 smoking minivans. And you just end up in places like that through all of life. I mean, there's, there's just, and there's shame associ- associated with that scale. I mean, I was thinking about students and grades and how you guys, I mean, what you do in school matters. Like people know if you're a smart student or not a smart student, right? And they're like, like separate, like there's different programs, like here's the gifted kids and they're real smart. And then there's the, you know, gen pop where they put the kids that are going to prison, right? No, I'm totally kidding, totally kidding. Totally kidding. But you have different levels. Like you got things and, and it, people know. And it's like a, a, it's associated with shame. And it's like you, you end up posting things when you graduate from, from college or graduate from high school about where you're going to school. And there's tears. I mean, I got three kids and two are in college and one's going to be in college soon. And it's like you've got, you know, what am I going to post? I got my, you know, my friends going to Florida State and they're embarrassed. I'm kidding. I'm a Florida State fan. <laughs> They're going, this person's going to Florida, this person's going to Brown, this person's going to, you know, all these crazy schools, and I'm, I haven't even figured out where I'm going, and I didn't get into this. And then they got to put it on Instagram, because everybody else is putting it on Instagram. And it's associated with scale. And we all, we all feel the, these different hierarchies, and all of life is associated with what's your positional authority in your job? Are you the boss? Are you climbing the ladder? Are you famous? I mean, some of you know I'm in the middle of an HGTV show, which is crazy. I don't even, it's just odd. Uh, don't know when it's going to air, so stop asking me. I have no idea. I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to be like hiding. Oh, it just got canceled. I don't know what happened. Um, but anyway, the, the guy, that, the host of the show, he's famous, Marcus Lemonis. He's a nice guy, and he can't help it. The dude's famous, got lots of money, and been on TV a lot. So people know who he is, and everybody's usually chill. And then, you know, when, when everybody comes on set, which is my yard, um, they, it's like all of a sudden it's just everything changes because there's hierarchy. He's the famous one. He's the rich one. He's the one that runs the show. He's the one that's planning everything. He's the one that everybody, if he makes a decision and says, hey, this is outside the budget. Oh, but we want to do it like this. I'm like, awesome. Not my money. And they're, all the producers are like, ah, but they're going to do it because he's the, he's the guy. All of life is built on these scales. But look at, look at what Jesus is doing. You know what was crazy about the disciples in this moment? Is they're looking at, and we all, this story's not that unfamiliar, Foot washing, you know, we should be better friends and better leaders. But think about this. No, but most people, they wash their own feet. They could do it themselves. Most people wash their own feet. It was hospitality. When somebody came in the door to a house, even if you had taken a shower before you went to have dinner with somebody in their courtyard, 
they're going to give you a basin of water because you're cruising around. It's, sandal, it's the era of sandals. You know, they're shuffling around. They got dust all over their feet and live in the Middle East. They, they gave them something to wash their feet. It was customary hospitality. But it was them to wash their own feet, for them to do it themselves. They could clean their own feet. And then the only exception to that was if somebody was more like wealthy and they had slaves and the slaves would come and wash the, the guest's feet or wash their feet. And that was it. And Jesus, what he's representing, the way it's described is he's doing exactly, taking, it, you wouldn't, as a rabbi, wouldn't be dropping your outer garments and, and wrapping a towel around your belt to wash feet. Only one group of people in society did that. Slaves. That was it. And Jesus is taking the position of a slave as the king of the universe, as the act, the one that was the active force in creating everything that we love and we see here on planet Earth, including you. He was, he was right there, Father, Son, and Spirit, when everything was breathed into existence. He was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, over heaven, over earth. Everything was created by him and for him. Him being the pronoun Jesus. He was the one. And here he is in flesh, on his knees, as low as he could possibly get, washing this ding-dong's feet. I mean, it is a crazy scene. So what's, what's Jesus doing here? And this is the first thing. He crushed pride, hostility, and hierarchy in one move. And it's going to go all the way. It's going, to, it's going to move all the way to the cross. As we go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he's crushing pride. Because he's the king and he can lower himself. He's saying, you can do this. Life is not, this isn't the way, this isn't what life is about. You were not created to attain your value, create your own identity. This scale that you've created is, is the problem of sin. I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to be, I'm going to win. I'm going to be, I'm going to be the one that climbs the scale. I'm the one that's going to be in position above somebody else. We literally oppress other people's so that we can feel better about ourselves. That's the way society works with hierarchies. Now, some of them just happen. Like you live on planet Earth, there's gonna be somebody that's gonna be your boss, there's gonna be somebody that's gonna work for somebody in a cubicle. I mean, that's just, that's part of life. But when that becomes your value, rather than your intrinsic value as a image bearer of God, then it creates a problem because we fight for it, we scramble for it, we crush one another to, to attain it. And we go into depression because we're battling for worthiness from other human beings which can't take the burden of carrying your worthiness. Like if my wife, if, if making her feel worthy as a human being was all on my shoulders, she'd be sunk. I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, I try my best to make her feel loved, cared for, tell her she's beautiful, all the stuff that, that, that my wife needs. But I'm not, that's not what it was. That's not the way that God set it up. Her value, her approval, it was coming from this moment right here. Jesus' willingness to descend and die and wash feet. Because that makes me, that right there, the king of the universe is willing to do that for me. That's way better than any value you could find here on planet Earth. It's interesting, if you read this, I love this article um, in Desiring God because it kind of puts this into perspective. It says, when we look at Jesus' humbling act of foot washing, we see why the disciples were unable to immediately grasp the significance of this act. Jesus lowered himself into the position of a lowly slave. He served like a slave. He washed the disciples' feet like the lowest of the low slave. 
because ultimately he was preparing to die the dehumanizing death of a slave. In essence, this is where the connection is made to Philippians. I love that the Apostle Paul grabs this whole idea. You might not have ever made the the foot washing connection into this passage of humility in Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, have this mind among yourselves. The Apostle Paul's leading in the same way that Jesus did. His Apostle Paul would tell you, follow me while I follow Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. He didn't grasp his authority. He didn't hold on to his scepter or his throne. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You see? Foot washing. Being born in the likeness of man. Being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient. Can you believe that? Obedient to the point of death. Jesus didn't need to be obedient. To obey? But Jesus did obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. All of us are scrambling for significance, and Jesus came to make you a brother and a sister. What he's doing, as this is representing the broken body and the blood, he bro- his body was broken, his, his blood was poured out, that you might, one, know just how much he sacrificed for you, and that you should never feel like you are unloved or alone, because God absolutely adores you. Because The cross was all about God's glory, but also your good. And for you to know that you're approved of by the king of the universe. As followers of Jesus, as people of his own choosing, he loves you. But what he was doing in this moment, in breaking down the the dividing wall, the, the hierarchical walls that we put up in our society that absolutely crush the soul, rich, poor, black, white, All different kinds of lines, successful, unsuccessful, somebody that works in this industry, somebody that works in this industry. We put scales on it, somebody that's famous, somebody that's unknown, somebody that sweeps floors at night. I can't wait to be in in heaven and, and see somebody that just absolutely rocked it on planet earth for the kingdom of God, but nobody knew who they were and they they swept floors for a living. And you're gonna see them, you're gonna see Jesus hanging out with them. You're gonna go up there and you're, you know. I had a BMW when I was on planet Earth. It's pretty nice. And he's going to be right there with Jesus, seated at his right hand. Just amazing thought in the way he crushes hierarchy. In Ephesians 2, it says that's what he's doing as he, as he gave away his life on the cross. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is the hierarchy of their day. By setting aside his flesh, the law and the commandments and its regulations. What he's saying there is everything that created status when it came to religious world, you know, whether you're a rabbi or a Pharisee or a Sadducee, these commands and these regulations were the things that helped let them know who was the special people and who was the not special people, who were the insiders and could find their way into inner courts of the temple and who weren't even allowed in the temple based on their status. He's crushing it. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, a collective, not an individualism, but collectivism, out of the two, all rooted in his blood, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Right there, it's such an amazing thing to see the hierarchy come down. We need it to come down in our heart. Two, he defined friendship by serving. 
I mean, this is a simple one. We don't even have to spend too much time here. But in John 13, 15, he says, I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, sometimes we're like, okay, just look, we need to be nice to each other as friends and, and be good to each other. But the whole idea here is in that statement, you should do as I have done for you. Like I'm setting an example. When we look at how Jesus loves his friends is he's not expecting anything in return, ever. He's giving knowing that you can't give to him. He's pouring out with unconditional love. And unconditional love means there's no condition. It's not, it's not um, I texted them four times and sent me back. You know, it's not any of that. That's not the type of friendship he's talking about. It's not somebody that's, you know, I pour out, I pour out, I pour out, I pour out, and they don't give anything back to me. I keep trying to connect with them, and I don't know if they're even my friend. I mean, there's not, that's not the type of friendship. It's th that type of stuff, as funny as it is, is like, is what tears apart the church. It's when we forget that we are all brothers and sisters, that we're all united under this thing called Jesus this Jesus thing that we're all a part of, he has united us. He's taken down the wall of hostility. But there's been so much hostility over the last three years. Some of the stupidest things. And I might get in trouble for saying this because it, the pandemic wasn't a small thing. I mean, the election wasn't a small thing. But in comparison, in the reality of the spiritual implications of what we're talking about today, it's minuscule. And we tore each other apart over it. The church ripped each other. They just, it just went to shreds in some ways. It didn't go away because nothing's going to overcome the church. Jesus is the head of the church. It's going to continue. But oh my goodness, we cannibalize each other inside of the church. And Jesus is saying we need to extend without expecting in return. We need to extend grace like I extend grace. Because you've received this grace, because you've received this, this should be the engine that makes you give it away to other people. Not, I'll give it away if you voted properly. I mean, it's just a thing that we do. No, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to love my friends. I'm going to love the people that God's connected me to in the church. A diverse group of people under one name. And his name is Jesus. You know, when you look at, you know, in the future, how the disciples, how the church blew up by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the middle of this, this Holy Spirit movement where the church was being added to daily. If you read Acts Chapter 2 at the end, right around verse 42, it just says, and all the believers, they liked each other. They dug each other. They hung out. And so the, the rich ones, you know what? They didn't keep their money. They gave it to the poor ones to make sure that they were all right. And everybody, nobody was in need. Nobody went hungry. And they all listened to the apostles' teaching. They were enjoying being together. And you know what was happening? It says, it says at the end of that passage, everybody was looking at the church. Everybody was looking and going, I, I kind of would like to, I wish we were like that. Honey, what are they talking about over there? Who's this Jesus guy? This resurrected dude? Because whatever that little, you know, thing. I thought it was cultish at first, but man, that, they really take care of each other. They're good to one another. And that was this amplifying. The Holy Spirit was just amplifying the city on the hill that Jesus wanted to be amplified. And people, it went from 3,000 to 5,000 to 25,000. It exploded because of the power of the Holy Spirit and because of friendship because of the way that they washed each other's feet metaphorically. They, they did it in every way, and it was a part of what the church is, and man, we, we need that. And lastly, in my, in my third point, I was just thinking about, and the last point is, he did, Jesus, what you could never do yourself. You could never do it. You know, I was thinking about, you know, years ago, 
Um, I had dinner with a guy, prominent kind of leader in, in Jacksonville. Uh, me and Beth uh, both went out uh, and had dinner with him. And it was an amazing dinner. Um, so nice uh, and appreciated being there. And then at the end, uh, I, you know, I pull up my wallet. I'm like, I was super appreciative. I was like, I'm, I'm you know, trying to pay. And he was like, you know, like from the old West. It was like, whoosh, you know, hand on my hand. Whenever you go to dinner with me. He didn't really sound like Clint Eastwood, but he said, whenever you go to dinner with me, you'll never pay. And I like, at, the, at the moment, I just thought, oh, that's super nice. But then I'm, I, you can, I know this is hard to believe, but I can overthink things. Um, <laughs> I got in the car, and I was just like, I don't know how cool that was. And was that really cool to just, you know, whenever you're with me, <laughs> you will not need to pay for anything. Because I don't need anybody to pay, pay for my, my bill, you know. Uh, but that's not what he was saying. But I think I was, it made me think, do I do that? Like, do I ever resist, like, somebody paying for my anything? Somebody helping me? Like, do I, do I, am I a good recipient? Like, I think before we can serve people well, before we can pour out, we don't, do we need to learn how to receive? Do we need to learn how to open our hands? Do we need to learn how to be needy and say, you know what? I do need to, I have to depend on God. I can't do this. I don't know how to overcome the fear. I don't know how to overcome the anxiety. I don't have, the unknown that's in the future for me, I don't know how to overcome being alone. I don't know how to overcome these things. Rather than grind it in, in the quiet places, which is what I do, to open myself up to, to God and other people. The, the, the pride, the, the hierarchy's gone. I don't have to go, well, you're one of those people that can't fix things on your own and can't figure out how to live life, so you're down here. No, Jesus crushed that already, right? So now I can open myself up to other people and not worry about what they think about me. And supposedly the people in the church, and we're not perfect and we will you know, crush each other occasionally, but this is probably where this should happen, where I can come to you and say, my life's not perfect. And y'all know mine's not. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what's happening in my life. This is why I'm sad. And that's a hard thing to say because everybody wants to be happy. And you know, when you say you're sad, you're worried that everybody's like, we don't want to invite the sad person to the party and you don't want to get invited. So, and I'm not telling you to bleed on everybody all the time, but you get what I'm saying. Like we need to be able to receive better. You always do that, right? You can't pay. Jesus is... He's the one that's paying. He, he's, he's extended. And he's saying, guess what? It's settled. In fact, this bill that you've got, it's a long one. And you couldn't pay it. You can't even come close. So I got to pay this one. I'm down on my knees washing your feet. You know why? Because you couldn't do it on your own. Only I could do this. You can't. You think you can do this. But you can't. And I want to sacrifice and serve you in this way. I love even thinking of Monday Thursday, which is the mandate that Jesus gave um, for them to love one another. But on Monday Thursday, Jesus dropped to his knees to scrub away every ethnic and economic hierarchy from the church. He upset cultural norms. He now calls us to go low in foot washing like service, in foot washing like service to one another. But most importantly, we are reminded that the Son of Man came to earth as a slave to serve us, to be crushed for us, to, to free us from our own slavery, to sin that leads to eternal death, to open the way for us to enjoy and delight in God's presence now and forever. 
I lo- this blew me away. He became a slave so that I could be free. He became a captive so that I could release these chains. So I could stop hiding in the dark. How cool is that? I always thought church was the place that you hid. Like, you better box it up. The church people going to get you, you know. Got a little liquor on the breath. Better cover that up. This should be the place that we come in broken. You know what I mean? I've, there's more stories. This Maybe this shouldn't be the banner of the church of people that have come into OCC so hungover. And, and I'm not saying that Jesus is going to meet you right where you are. Now, he doesn't want you to stay there. He loves you too much to leave you there. But he's going to meet you right there. We should, it shouldn't be this like... We need to walk Teddy out because he's going to embarrass people with his alcohol breath. I mean, it, this should be the place where that's, people are running to the city on a hill because this is where the open arms are. This is where the foot washers are. This is where the servants are. This is where Jesus is. That's where we want to be. As we look at this table, I hope we look at communion differently because when I think about foot washing now, I think about the table because it all happened at the same time. Like it was all going down together. And you've got the thing that we couldn't do on our own. And he's doing it. He's with his friends in the upper room. And they, 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 got, they, they know what's going on. It's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they're like, what's good? Well, you know, Jesus is kind of kicking things off. But he does it different than they were used to. He takes the bread in his hands. And he says, this is my body. This is my body broken for you. The thing you couldn't do on your own. You can't break your own body. This is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It's a new covenant in my blood. Old old covenant was the system that was in place to show you that you couldn't do it on your own. You weren't able to do it. The old system for you to get in there, the temple system, none of y'all could do it. Things have changed. There's gonna be blood in the soil tomorrow morning and that's gonna change everything for you going to open the doors wide so that you can come and it doesn't matter what you've done in the past since past present future annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ he says every time you come together I want you to do this I want you to keep doing this to remember because you're going to forget you're going to forget that the hierarchy is broken you're going to try to identify yourself you're going to try to create identity for yourself in so many different ways And the only identity you need to remember is your identity in Christ, that you're a son, that you're a daughter of the king, that Jesus is your better elder brother. I mean, that's better than any approval you can get here on planet Earth. When you do that, you remember. You remember. His body was broken for me. His blood was poured out for me. I am loved by the king. I'm loved by the king. This puts us right here at the foot of the cross to remember him. And it's so powerful and useful for our own heart. And as the servers come, I just want to kind of explain how this, how this goes. Um, and they're, going to, they're going to lead you through most of it, so don't be nervous about it. If, you, like if you're not a Christian and you're trying to figure it out, you're like, I'm, I, don't, but the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, he'd say, guys, we want to honor this. This is, a, this is a table. We don't want to make this flippant. We don't want to make this routine. This is, these are holy moments that Jesus told us to, to remember. And it's, if you're not a believer, it's not something that you just do because everybody else is doing it. But here's the cool thing. Is that if Jesus has woken you up, maybe in the last few weeks, maybe, maybe even today, then this table's open for you. 
It's open for anyone that's willing to open their hands and say, I can't do it on my own and I believe in Jesus and I believe he did it for me. It's open to anybody. And if that's you, if that happened in worship today, if that happened you know, today as we're reading the word of God, maybe right now the Holy Spirit's doing something in your heart, I would say today should be your first communion. This should be the time that, we, that you do it. It's happened for people in our church before where this was the moment they said, it's all clicked for me. And they came forward and the day that they were saved was the day that they took communion the first time. So I would extend that invitation straight from the word of God. So I'm gonna pray. You can take your time. You can pray for a second um, and then you can line up um, and take communion. God, we just love you. We love what this table represents. We love that your spirit is here. When two or more are gathered, you are doing something special in the room. Just come, Holy Spirit. Come, God, and change our heart. Open up our mind to remember what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.